Welcome to Seven Skills for the Future podcast. My name is Emma Sue Prince and I'm author of Seven Skills for the Future. Both the book and the podcast are all about raising awareness of seven key skills that we each have inside us. Those skills are adaptability, empathy, critical thinking, integrity, being proactive, being optimistic and being resilient. And it's all about how we bring those skills into our everyday lives. How do we live and use them every single day? By doing so, I believe that this impacts our relationships, both personal and professional, our productivity levels, our effectiveness, our work, our happiness, everything. Today, I am welcoming Martin Bromley to the podcast. Martin is a senior airline pilot with one of the major UK airlines. He runs a charity that is within the healthcare sector around developing awareness and education of human factors within healthcare. He's got a really interesting story to tell. These human factors are skills like being assertive, being able to work really well within a team, leadership, communication, being able to communicate really well with people who've got different roles and different positions, decision-making, situation awareness. These are all skills that are highly relevant both to the airline industry, the healthcare industry, and loads of other industries as well. And we talk about the issues around developing these kinds of skills, their role within training, and all of the important work that Martin's Charity is doing within this arena. I'm delighted to be welcoming Martin Bromley to the show today. Thank you so much for being with us today, Martin. No, thank you for letting me speak. So I'd love to hear more about your story and how you came to be doing what you're doing now within the healthcare sector. So uh, back in 2005, uh, I was an airline pilot, uh, married two very young children, four and five years old. And uh, my then wife, Elaine, went into hospital for what I thought was a a routine operation and indeed was. Um, Mm. But uh, problems occurred while she was being anaesthetised. She ended up in a coma in intensive care, having never regained consciousness and died 13 Mm. days later. Mm. And during Mm. that uh, during that time, I, I had, you know, no real understanding of what was going on. Uh, Although I did ask Mm. lots of questions and it had been very Mm. patiently explained that when she'd been anaesthetised, problems had occurred, that they'd done all the right things and it just didn't work out. And, and I completely accept that, you know, that that's life sometimes. Uh, but mm. I assumed, as would be normal in my own industry, that there would be some form of investigation, not to try and blame anybody, but just to mm. try and understand what could be learned. And when I was told that that wasn't really how things were done in healthcare at the time, um, mm-hmm. I was absolutely horrified. 
And uh, it's a long story, but in the end, I, I managed to persuade the director of uh, where it happened, uh, the establishment where it happened, that there should be uh, some form of independent review, purpose of learning. And when I got the um, report back from that and then subsequently went through the inquest, mm. uh, what I recognised is that what happened to uh, Elaine wasn't, in fact, uh, a whole set of um, healthcare issues. In reality, she was being looked after by a technically competent team. Mm, uh, mm. But unfortunately, where things fell down was in their non-technical skills, if you like, the, the soft skills some people refer to them as. So they mm. they basically struggled with their decision-making, with what we call situational awareness, uh, with mm. their uh, communication, with their team working, their assertiveness, and a whole series of other things. Uh, that in the end led to um, Elaine suffering brain damage. Oh, what 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 a horrendous horrendous situation for your family! Um, I can't even imagine what that must have been like. It was, um, I mean, as you can imagine, it was uh, a horrendous time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the reality was, you know, I wasn't that interested in what had happened. And that probably sounds a bit strange, but. But when something like that happens in your life, you have to prioritise. And initially, of course, my priority was to make sure that Elaine got better. And then mm. when I realised actually that was never going to happen, um, yeah. it sounds awful. But to think about, you know, what might happen next. And, and in, in mm. the end, in fact, we had to turn off her life support. Mm. But mm. then my focus very much was about bringing up the children and getting myself back to work. And, and in the back of my mind was an awareness that, there needed to be an investigation to see if anything could be learnt because otherwise it's a, a life wasted. And, yeah. and it was only it was only after a period of time uh, when I'd read the report, when I'd been through the inquest, that I suddenly started to think, hang on a minute, all the things that, that came together in Elaine's death mm-hmm. were exactly the same things that in aviation we are trained on, we, we mm-hmm. are examined on, and mm-hmm. we spend our working life talking about. Yet yeah. when I spoke to, spoke to doctors... Um, and it was particularly doctors initially, um, and talked about this stuff, they looked at me as if to say, we're not sure what you're on about. We've never heard Mm. about any of this human factors stuff, Mm. basically. Mm -hmm. And so at what point did you then decide to um, actively work in this area and and do what you're doing now with with your charity? How did that come about? So I, I think it's um, it, it was a, an evolving process that was never planned. As I say, my, my mm. priority was looking after the children and getting back to work. Uh, and yeah. I did get back to work and I'm still flying today. I'm a, a training captain for a major UK airline. Mm. Uh, but mm. um, in the background was was every so often I'd hit the emails or the phones and, and have a chat with people and I'd get passed on from person to person, basically saying, oh, I can't really help you, Martin, I'm a doctor, but I've got a friend who might know something about this. And over a couple of years, I built up a, a list of emails and phone numbers and of people across the country who are working in healthcare, some world-class academics, but all the way through to chief execs of hospitals and, and clinicians of all sorts. Uh, and I got a list of maybe 50 or 60 people. And I went to the Department of Health and said, there's people down in Cornwall doing some great stuff and some people Mm. in Scotland doing some great stuff, but they're not aware of each other. They're not talking to each other. Mm. If I Mm. get them together in a room, will you pay for the room? And they said no. 
So I thought, fine, I'll do it myself, uh, which is what I did. In fact, they did actually end up paying for the room. Um, but we got everybody together, maybe 40 or 50 people in the room uh, back in 2007. And we just spoke about what was going on. And um, and somebody said, well, maybe we need to kind of keep working together. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we need to have some mechanism for helping support that. So I created a charity really as a vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, but that charity has now progressed. We're now 12 years down the line um, and uh, we've been remarkably influential, actually, in not only in promoting an understanding of human factors at the front line, uh, and, and now, for example, um, if you go on a, through um, a, a medical, um, medical d- a degree, if you go through um, as, a, as a nurse through your training, you will come across human factors. Mm. Uh, but actually, uh, more fundamentally, we've had changes in policy at the very top as well, which are trying yeah. to make it easier to understand and implement these things. And mm. so that charity, although I still, my profession is still as a pilot, mm. uh, on the side, I'm still helping to, to to run the charity as part of the team yeah. trustees. Okay. And, 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 do, and the charity delivers training as well. Is that right? No, actually, funny enough, we don't, and and that's a, but it's but it's a common misconception, and I, it's lovely you've said that. Um, but actually, what we do is we just promote the science of human factors. So okay. our, our our raison d'etre is basically about education in its widest sense. So education yeah. could be what I'm doing today, you know, talking to you. It could be about sitting down with a health minister for for half an hour yes. and explaining the science of it. Um, it yes. could be writing articles or producing videos and DVDs, podcasts, yes. all that sort of stuff. I so see. it's trying to educate in the broadest yeah. sense. But there are people out there who actually deliver this sort of training, um, uh, commercial organisations, and also within the NHS as well. Yes, that's right. They do, um, and and we've come across them as well in 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 the work that we do. Um, mm. But it still it still strikes me that these sessions that. Uh, you know, as an outsider to the NHS, th- these mm-hmm. sessions seem to be very um, uh, isolated. Uh, yes. So, and, and not very long, you know, so people will come to a session. I, I mean, I, I actually sat in on a human factor session that was about, I think it was like half an hour, you know, yeah. half an hour, 40 minutes. And I couldn't help thinking, well, what happens after this? You know, what happens Absolutely. when they're actually back at work? And, and I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more with you um, that that there is a, a kind of philosophy i think in the nhs particularly that we we do tick boxes and we we we've done our half mm. our human factors training now let's move on to something much more important is the kind of attitude mm. so so but fundamentally the science of human factors actually goes much deeper than our behaviors it's much more about the design of the system yeah so for example in my late wife's case um there were four uh, junior staff if i can call them that in the room uh, two uh, nursing uh, two uh, nurses and two anesthetic assistants mm-hmm. and they struggled to speak up and in fact yes. two of them tried but were unsuccessful so you would immediately say well clearly there's a behavioral issue we need to train our more junior staff in how to speak up but then you say well actually but shouldn't the more senior staff be encouraging that mm. so we then need to look at their behaviors mm. but then it goes beyond that to say but why why do those behaviors not come naturally in the first place and when we start to look at the system there are minimal opportunities for example to brief and debrief often during procedures and i know we now have a safe surgery checklist which um, some people struggle to apply but but it goes beyond that all the way through to who we select for example for medical school 
So we tend to select people who are often highly competitive. They've had to be to get really good grades. And then throughout their medical uh, career, they often have to compete for roles and posts and things like that. But but what we those same behaviours that are often exhibited in that competitive environment Mm. are exactly the same behaviours that discourage people speaking up, Mm. but they Mm. also encourage the idea that the individual, the hero, can save the day. The problem is that might have been true in healthcare 150, 200 years ago, where you went to see a a physician or a surgeon. But today, healthcare is an incredibly complex system with, mm. with interactions that nobody really fully understands for an individual patient. And a typical patient, complex comorbidities, um, you might be the world's best surgeon, but the patient outcomes are dependent on so many other mm. things, not just the team you're directly working with as the surgeon, but the care in the ward, the care in mm. the community that follows on because of that patient situation. And understanding how the system works and how we can design the yes. system yes. that makes it easy to do the right things and and therefore also encourage the behaviours that make it easier yeah. for people to do the right things and harder to do the wrong yes. things is a fundamental. So you're absolutely right. It's great that we can see people being trained in these behaviours and we can train individuals in these behaviors successfully because that's what we do in for example my own industry Mm. but we also have to have a system Mm. that supports and encourages the development of a culture and processes and ways of working that still make it easier to do the right things yes yes no that's really interesting and also you know with behaviors so much of that is about self-awareness isn't it it's not it's not sort of training yourself to behave a different way it's actually having a a very strong and healthy self-awareness um and and that's i think that's a real you know that's a real fundamental that i see across many industries mm-hmm. and it that that self-awareness that 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 creates a desire for true continuous yes. professional development yes. so in healthcare there is a, requirement, a requirement for cpd and people will go off and they'll attend a course for a couple of days and that's really great and interesting and you've got x number of cpd points yeah. That's not what I think many of us would regard as continuous professional Mm. development. Um, It's much more about that Mm. self-awareness, working on what you need to work from. It's about real-time feedback Mm. often from Mm. people around you and developing the skills that are going to ultimately make you safer and more effective. And and by all means, go and acquire extra knowledge and things like that. But the real knowledge is, of course, about how you interact with others and the impact on others. Yeah. Yeah. And... um, could you um i'm just curious about how this is addressed in the airline industry so could you could you talk about some of the training that is done there um around these skills and you know the conversations that take place and so on yeah so for example we will uh, it's a theme of your training so from the day you walk through the doors of a, a flying school for example um all the way through to the day you retire uh, there is there is obviously a lot of technical knowledge and technical skills that you require uh, to get and to develop, mm. but the, the non-technical skills are built into that. So, for example, it's no good being me being able to land a plane really, really well using my hand-eye coordination if I'm unaware of what's going on around me, if there's other aircraft on approach at the time or if maybe a mistake has been made by air mm. traffic control mm 
uh, or maybe I'm making a mistake, I need to also understand those other skills of things like we talk about situational awareness and decision-making, prioritization, workload management, all those things come together to create the, uh, a much better outcome. Mm. And so throughout the training, it's that kind of build of technical and non-technical goes on all the time. Now, we do have some specific standalone training. We talk about something called crew resource management, uh, and we also talk about things called threat and error management, and we actually have courses on those. So, for example, you will arrive, you'll go through your flying school and attend a number of courses and be examined in those topics. Um, but also when you get to your airline, you'll have to attend other courses and you'll be continually assessed on those. So, for example, um, as, a, as a training captain, as an examiner, one of my roles is that I have to not only examine people's technical skills, and, and these could be people who are, you know, just coming up for retirement, but we're still examining, mm. uh, looking at their skills every six months. And it's assessing those skills, a range of competencies, um, to see that they are doing the right things and to see what they can learn. So mm. so there is a, a for, for aviation, it's very much about, it's not just assuming, it's not just doing a paper examina- examinations, it's also about observing mm. in simulated situations and in real situations. And that's where you get good quality objective feedback from mm-hmm. um, on, on what we see on a day. Yeah. And, and then people can build on yeah. that. Yeah, 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 and as you say, it is it, it, it's something that you've got to be doing on a re- regular basis because these uh, the, these human factors they fluctuate, don't they? I mean, you you don't sort of have them, and then, yeah, they do. Uh, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and your yeah, and over your career, your skills will change mm-hmm. and your abilities will change. And but the problem is, is we assume, I think, in healthcare that. Um, when you're a, a new, and again, I'm deliberately using the term medical mm-hmm. student because I think that drives behaviours we see, for example, with nurses and with physios mm-hmm. and things like that throughout mm-hmm. the system, uh, where the medical schools go, the others tend to follow. So throughout medical school, the idea is if we can pump you full of knowledge, uh, then you're going to be perfect one day and you won't make yes. mistakes. And that seems to be the philosophy, whereas the real world we know and, and, you know, everybody I talk to outside of healthcare understands this, um, that, that real human beings make mistakes. Yes. So we yeah. need to work in ways mm. and we need to develop the ways of working that reduce the probability that those errors can mm. become serious. Mm. And that requires good teamwork. So that's why we focus on developing those skills mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to healthcare, which seems to still live under this idea that knowledge will trump everything. Mm. And, and if you are a specialist after a number of years you will know everything of course you won't you can still you can be the world's best surgeon and you can still take out the left kidney instead of the right kidney by accident and we know that has happened on numerous occasions um and so so are they are these stupid people well the answer of course isn't Mm -hmm. that they're stupid the answer is is there is something about the way in which they're working Mm -hmm. the environment the tools the people around them Mm -hmm. that is not allowing that safe outcome Mm -hmm. to happen Mm -hmm. I completely agree with you about the system and the culture because another issue around training and soft skills training, which I'm sure you're aware of, is that, is that it in itself is pretty unregulated. So, you know, these organisations that, that mm. are delivering human factors training or, or, you know, any of these sorts of skills around teamwork, 
leadership, communication skills. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all unregulated as well. Um, and the quality of training in those areas can also be, um, you know, yeah. very variable um, indeed, which I don't think helps. <laughs> yeah. And certainly, so so one thing we've done in aviation, and in fact, it's uh, European-wide at the minute, there are European regulations which we currently adhere to and we are likely to adhere mm. to for the skills required of the people who are delivering this training, what the training should include and what it should be like and what it should focus mm-hmm. on. And you have to be qualified to be able to deliver that training in mm. aviation. Mm. Now, interestingly, a lot of the organisations that deliver this sort of training in healthcare the people delivering them are actually qualified under the aviation system, ah. but there are an awful lot of people who yes. aren't. Yeah. So um, I would say the majority mm. aren't. And the problem then becomes that, that things get lost in the message. So, for example, I was involved in a conversation with a couple of um, very junior consultants uh, just last week, and um, they were talking about the danger of personality profiling mm. in selection. Mm. And, and I said to them, well, hold on, actually, I said, in aviation, we don't care about your personality. Mm. What we care about is the behaviours you exhibit. Mm. So you can be the world's most competitive person as long as we don't see mm. those behaviours exhibited in the mm. flight deck. And that's for me about, so, so when it comes to um, training, for example, I hear stories where people are talking about personality traits and all that sort of yeah. stuff. And although it's interesting, mm-hmm. we, we really want people to, to understand the fundamentals. That this is actually about the behaviours you yes. exhibit. Yeah. And actually, you know what? When I, look at the, when I look at the health service and I look at many of the scandals that have happened, there is often a large element of a culture that's been created by leaders. And when you look at the behaviours that those leaders have exhibited, mm-hmm. you have to ask yourself... That's why we need to, mm. to focus on behaviours because there are some behaviours that are absolutely disastrous in a safety-critical setting. Mm. So, for example, if, you're, if you and I are working together in a, in a ward, for example, and we're both uh, clinicians of some sort, and I was about to um, perform some procedure on a patient and you said to me, actually, Martin, I'm not sure that's the, I'm not sure you've started this off correctly. The mm. patient needs to have these antibi- antibiotics. Um, and I turned around to you and said, don't be stupid. Um, I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the immediate impact on you is, okay, you're not going to say any more probably, but the long-term impact is significant mm-hmm. uh, in that you're unlikely to want to speak up to me again about anything yes. when in the reality you're trying to save you're trying to save me, my career, you're trying to save the patient as well. Yeah. They may come to no harm, but it's still suboptimal or they may come to harm, which is clearly a disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what, but what we see are these exact same beha- behaviours being exhibited throughout many layers mm. of healthcare leadership, mm. and that includes senior clinicians as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I guess this is also something which happens across many industries, not just, not just healthcare and airline, probably, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I've, met, I've met, for example, whistleblowers from the financial mm. services industry. I've... Um, I, I've uh, met the prime whistleblower from Enron, for example, from the whole Enron scandal. And so we see these behaviours mm. in all sorts of other industries. And you know what? When we read about disasters, mm. we read read about uh, Chernobyl, um, we uh, read about um, the uh, Deepwater Horizon disaster in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, we read about Piper mm. Alpha, we, we read about these things. Again, the same sort of behaviours, suboptimal mm. behaviours, are often exhibited. Mm. And, and the important thing is to say that if you behave in a certain way, 
it does not guarantee safety and it does not mm. guarantee disaster. Mm. But what we know through history in safety critical industries is that there are certain behaviours that often are present yes. prior to a disaster yeah. and there are certain behaviours that are often present prior to a success. Mm -hmm. So we really want to develop those behaviours that are uh, that support uh, good, safe outcomes, and we want to try and avoid yeah. those behaviours, which can often lead to disasters. Yeah, yeah. And um, is your charity creating and conducting research around all of this and, and, and documenting the research? So what we're trying to do is we're trying to act as a, as a conduit, basically, and as a repos repository for information. Yeah. So um, we will get people getting in touch with us saying, I'm working on a project around human factors and specifically around, I don't know, decision making um, uh, up in Bolton, you know, is, is there other people mm -hmm. I can talk to? And, and we then try and put them in touch with others who might be able to work on that area. Likewise, if somebody comes to us and says, here's some research, then we will try and uh, host it on our website yes. or at least provide links. So it's basically trying to provide those um, those resources. Yeah. It's trying to open a window yeah. in a way. Um, but it's also, it's a very valuable process. Mm -hmm. So so we have about 3,500 supporters on directly with the website, another 12,000 or so through mm -hmm. social media. And um, what we often find is we have a very valuable insight into what's going on mm. in healthcare because unlike a lot of bodies we are focused on everybody yes. <laughs> if i can say yeah. that so it doesn't matter whether yeah. you're a world-class academic a chief exec whether you're a porter mm. a nurse whoever you are mm. you um can engage mm. with us and that means that for example i was in a meeting three years ago with then secretary of state for health and, and there was a query over a particular policy and I was able to produce mm -hmm. evidence and say, well, from across the range of people that we work with, this is what we understand. These are our views. And I don't think there's many other organisations yeah. in healthcare who can yeah. claim to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. and, and having being able to connect with those people is mm -hmm. really important because I think sometimes it does bring a credibility yes. um, uh, for yeah. the work we do. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so, Martin, I want to end with a, with a more personal question, if that's all right. Um, mm, when, so when you look course. back at the, the last, you know, the last 12 years and the loss of your wife and, and, and creating what you've created, mm -hmm. I mean, this is not something you could ever have envisaged doing, you know, uh, no. 20 years ago. Or, you know, so how, how, do you, how do you feel about the work that you're doing and the fact that it's come out of such a tragedy? I think it's probably given me something to focus mm. on it's given me something that is that that is um good i think you know when when you face and we all face disasters in our lives um of varying sorts and it's very easy to get mm. angry and despondent um, but actually it doesn't really help the only thing that really makes a difference at the end of the day i think for me is whether people can learn mm -hmm. and so, so for me, I can look back because I do get emails from people um, who say, you know what, actually, I saved a life mm -hmm. yesterday. I remembered what happened in the late wife's case. This is yeah. what I did. And I also get uh, emails and letters. Literally, I just got a letter a few minutes before I came, came on this call from somebody to say that, you know, that, that my work mm -hmm. has had a tremendous mm -hmm. impact on, on their mm -hmm. life. And I think for me, I think those are really valuable things all i ever wanted to do really was to be able to say to my two children um that 
um, some, although they lost their mum, some good had come from what had happened. And I think for me, that's that's the really valuable thing. And um, you know what, I, I what for all the kind of structural and policy changes that I might have been involved in over the years. I think the biggest change has been that when I go to listen to doctors or nurses or other staff talking, um, they can often have conversations about human factors from a, from the perspective of somebody who has an insight into what it means mm-hmm. and how it affects their practice. Yes. And what that means is sustainability, that once you've kind of opened the box about yeah. the topic, people start to look at it. And it does really affect how they continue to work and behave mm-hmm. uh, for the rest of their career. Mm-hmm. And that really is where the sustainability comes mm-hmm. from. The policies and, and all those sorts of things are enablers that make it easier. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I, I feel I feel good about, mm-hmm. you know, where we've come and what we've mm-hmm. done. Oh, that's, that's, it's, it's a very inspiring story. And I think the work you're doing is, is, is wonderful. And um, especially given, you know, that because we do work with the NHS and, and we do see hmm. people, but we only see, we sort of only see a glimpse of them and we hear a little bit about but some of the things that you've said around, you know, the hierarchy and how they interact with each other and, you know, or, hmm. or even working with a group of people who have just coming up to the end of medical school and they are absolutely constantly on edge on, on this sort of high alert because they've been, as you say, in a competitive environment for several years and you know there's so many things mm. that, that 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 play a part um could we could you tell us the uh, how people can find out more about you and and your charity with your website yeah of course so um the the easiest thing is to have a look at our charity website which is www.chfg.org that's the clinical human factors yeah. group um and that uh, will lead to all sorts of other uh, websites mm-hmm. and social media sites and all that sort of thing mm-hmm. but that's the first kind of place to, to have a look and as i say we're we're just you know we, we just act as a hub if you like where people can kind of have a look mm-hmm. at what we're up to and have a look at what's going on and um, find out more information from there but there are plenty of other organizations out there who mm-hmm. do this stuff uh, but we're just open mm-hmm. to everybody mm-hmm. i suppose well i'm definitely going to make sure that the uh the people that we interact with on our workshops that they have access to the to, to the website because it's it's a resource that we can also provide to them um i don't know to what extent that happens but mm. we're definitely going to start doing that um so thank Lovely. you very much martin for coming on the show um it's been wonderful to to hear about your work and what you're doing and really appreciate your time today okay and thank you very much for having me on Thank you for listening to this episode of the Seven Skills for the Future podcast. You can find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere where podcasts can be found. If you want to make sure that every new episode ends up on your phone, all you need to do is hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a five-star review so more people can find out about the show? If you'd like to stay in touch or send in one of your questions for Emma Sue, then go to Unimenta on Twitter, 7 Skills for the Future on Instagram, or at unimenta.com. We'd love to hear from you. And of course, there's the book, 7 Skills for the Future, available at booksellers everywhere.